0: As we've mentioned earlier, we will be doing a Christmas series this month on what I'm calling Christmas Fathers and Mothers. Uh, Next week, we will be looking at Zechariah and Elizabeth, who are the parents of John the Baptist. Week after that, on the 17th, uh, we'll look at Joseph and Mary on the 24th. We're going to focus on Rachel, who is actually referred to in Matthew 2.18 in relation to Herod having the male children killed in Bethlehem because of his concern over the birth of Jesus. This morning, we begin our series by focusing on God the Father. The coming of Jesus Christ into the world, of course, did not happen in a vacuum. There were dozens and dozens and dozens of prophecies in the Old Testament that spoke of a coming Messiah. The prophecy spoke of how he would be born. They spoke of where he would be born. They spoke of at what point in history he would be born. Uh, They spoke of what he would do how he would be treated, how much he would suffer, what he would accomplish. They spoke of not only his birth, but also his death, resurrection, and exaltation. So all we read in the Gospels was prophesied in the Old Testament. But the coming of the Son of God into the world to accomplish salvation for sinners was determined long before the world was even created the triune god is perfectly good and wise and has sovereignly foreordained all things whatsoever come to pass so when we think about christmas when we think about the coming of jesus christ into the world we must first think of the triune god's eternal plan and purpose that eternal plan is often referred to as the covenant of redemption that's what we'll that's the phrase we'll use to describe it this morning the bible speaks much about covenants. Uh, The word itself shows up over 300 times in the Bible. There's another hundred or so references to the covenantal idea of swearing an oath. So covenant is really a major theme in the Bible. In fact, God has chosen to deal with humanity through covenants. The agreement made with Adam in the Garden of Eden is oftentimes called the covenant of works. And this agreement makes it clear that all mankind is sinful, we can never be good enough for God by our works, and therefore reminds us we need a Savior. What's often called the covenant of grace was first introduced and promised to Adam and Eve in response to their sin, that one would come, the seed of the woman, to crush Satan's head. It's the promise of salvation by grace through a promised Messiah. And then, of course, we see covenants made with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, with David, They all served as progressive revelation of God's work of salvation, and all pointed to the new covenant, which is centered around the person and work of Jesus Christ. But before all those things took place in history, there was a covenant between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that took place in eternity. So the covenants of the Old Testament, and especially of the new covenant, were the result of that eternal covenant. That's what's called the covenant of redemption. So let's look at our first point on your outline. The covenant of redemption is an eternal agreement within the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, to save elect sinners by grace alone. There are several places that give us insight into this eternal covenant. Psalm 2, 6 through 8 is one of those places. Here's what it says. As for me, this is God the Father speaking, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the inheritance as your, these nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. So here is a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. It's a decree. It's, an, it's a promise. It's an agreement between the Father and Son that took place in eternity. And here we see that the Son, we see that after the Son accomplished salvation for his people, he would be enthroned as king. We see a similar conversation in Psalm 110. Let's see here. Psalm 110, which actually starts off in a similar way. It says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So this speaks of that same enthronement, but we see here that it was ordained that the father would sit at the right hand of the father as the great mediator, as the king. And then in Psalm 110 verse four, we see another aspect of that eternal covenant. The Lord has sworn and will not, that sworn is our covenant language. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind you are a priest, speaking to, Father speaking to the Son. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Of course, the book of Hebrews speaks much of this. This speaks of Christ's priestly role. The fact that he will make sacrifice for the sin of his people as our great high priest. And once again, David the psalmist, under the inspiration of God the Spirit, is giving us insight into this eternal agreement again, that we're calling the covenant of redemption. So we can see this next point clearly from these passages. God the Father spoke in this eternal agreement of the redemptive work given to the Son, of the redemptive work given to the Son. In both Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, we can see that this is true. We can also see it, I'm going to give you another example, from Isaiah 49, which is one of the servant songs of Isaiah. Isaiah first three verses say this, "'Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. "'The Lord, Jehovah God, called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. "'He named me. "'He has made my mouth like a sharp sword, and the shadow of his hand he has concealed me. "'He has also made me a select arrow. "'He has hid me in his quiver. "'He said to me, "'You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory.'" So once again, what we see here is a holy dialogue between God the Father and God the Son. And we see here that the Son agreed to take on human nature. Then we skip down to verse 8, and we read this. He says, you have not heard, you have not known, even, oh, I'm looking at the wrong, that's 48, 49, that's what I need. Thus says the Lord, in a favorable time, I have answered you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. And I will keep you and give you, again, Father speaking to the Son, will give you for a covenant of the people to restore the land, to make them inherit the desolate heritages. So he says, I will give you as a covenant of the people. He's speaking of a covenant that will accomplish salvation for the Jews, but reach the nations of the earth as well, as you continue to read the rest of the, of the chapter. Greg Nichols makes this comment about the covenant of redemption. This is on your outline. He says, the incarnation of Christ is a redemptive mission in history that grows out of a redemptive commission in eternity. So the gospel tells us, the gospels tell us about the, Son of God taking on human flesh, coming into the world to accomplish salvation for sinners. Matthew and Luke uh, especially give us a good deal of information about his birth. His coming into the world was a redemptive mission, but we keep in mind that it grew out of a redemptive commission that took place in eternity. So the scriptures that we've looked at so far, the focus has been on the eternal agreement between the Father and the Son. That's what's emphasized in the Old Testament in this regard. But this next statement is true as well. God the Spirit agreed in eternity that he would apply the salvation earned by the Son to his people. That he would apply. We don't see this directly addressed in the Old Testament, but it's indirectly spoken of. Every author of the Old Testament scriptures, of course, was inspired to write what they did by the Holy Spirit. Moses, Isaiah, Joshua, Jeremiah, Daniel, David, all others were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the things that they wrote. The Spirit revealed what was to be written and then ensured that what the inspired writers wrote was accurate, such that it could be rightly called the Word of God. So the Spirit was most definitely a part of all the eternal conversations we have seen between the Father and the Son. And He was not only fully present, but he had a role in this covenant of redemption that was just indispensable. The salvation of sinners cannot be accomplished without the work of the Spirit. Here's what John Gill said about the role of the Spirit. Again, this is on your outline. There are many things which the Holy Spirit himself undertook and engaged in covenant to do, and nothing more strongly proves this than his doing them. For had he not agreed to do them, they would not have been done by him. So that's exactly true. God the Father purchased, or God the Father purposed salvation. God the Son purchased the salvation of sinners through his life, death, and resurrection. And then God the Spirit sovereignly applies that salvation to all that the Father has chosen to be his people. The salvation of any person is the result of the triune God. The fact that we are told to baptize believers in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit reminds us it takes the triune God to save anyone. That's how bad we are. That's how bad our situation is. It takes the triune God to save us. Now, with those things in mind, I want to spend the rest of our time looking at various passages in the gospel of John. John's gospel is written different than the others. He focuses on More on the eternal purposes beyond what Jesus accomplished, a little bit more than Matthew, Mark, and Luke might do. So, our second main point is this the personal testimony of God the Son confirmed and elaborated on this eternal covenant. Early chapters of Matthew and Luke uh, begin with events related to the birth of Jesus. Mark actually begins with the ministry of John the Baptist, John begins with eternity. Look at John 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, four times there, in those two verses, John uses the term, the word was. Now, it's written in the imperfect tense, which means you read it this way, was and always has been. So, let's read, read those verses that way. In the beginning was and always has been the Word. And the word was and always has been God. And the word was and always has been uh, with God. That's with God and then God. He was and always has been in the beginning with God. So John is telling us right up front that before the Son of God came to earth to save sinners, he was with God the Father. That's because he is God. He's a distinct person from the Father, but is of the same essence with the Father. Jesus himself is going to affirm this later, but we see in verse 14 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the Son of God was born into the world with a real human body, which is what we celebrate at Christmas. And that's because this was agreed and decreed in the covenant of redemption. Now, as we look through the book of John, we're going to see Jesus affirming and elaborating on this eternal covenant. First, we see this. Jesus Christ affirmed the eternal counsel of redemption with the Father. You can see this assumed in numerous places through the book of John, uh, but it's more specifically explicit in John 17. John 17 is Jesus' high priestly prayer. going we'll read what he says here in verses 5 through 8. Now, Father... Glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you you gave me, I have given to them, and they receive them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. So in this prayer, in this part of uh, his prayer, Jesus speaks to the Father about the eternal glory he shared with the Father before the world, the universe, before everything was created. He speaks of God's eternal decree of election when he refers to his disciples as They were yours, and you gave them to me. So that includes here, that you've given them to me, that includes the son's eternal commission to provide redemption for those the father gave him. In verse 4, Jesus speaks of that redemption work that the father gave him as being accomplished. In verse 8, Jesus says that he came forth from the father. All this affirms that an eternal counsel had been agreed upon and then fully carried out. And Jesus is referring to that in his prayer. Verse 24 then of John 17. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they will see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. So the reality that those who would believe were given to the Son in eternity is once again affirmed. And this verse also speaks of the fact that the Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world. Now in the context of this prayer, that love includes loving the Son as the Lamb of God. He would have to be the Lamb of God to purchase salvation for those that the Father gave him. And the Father loved him in that sense. So Jesus Christ clearly affirmed the eternal counsel of redemption with the Father. Now, next we're going to see a significant part of this counsel of redemption. As I've kind of gone through these verses in John, and most of you have probably read the Gospel of John yourself, one thing I was really struck this week is how just enamored John is, was with these truths. I mean, he just constantly bringing these things out in ways that the other guys didn't do. He's just enamored with the eternality of God and this decree that was made and everything that related to what Jesus Christ was accomplishing. So my prayer has been for me and for you that we would kind of pick up some of this from John, just his, this wonder, this awe that he writes with. Point B is Jesus Christ affirmed that he was sent by the father to save a people given to him before the foundation of the world. Now we've already mentioned this, but this truth just shows up all over and over again through the book of John. We we'll begin with some of the best-known verses in all the Bible, John 3:16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have ever eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So we're reminded here that the impetus for the Son of God being sent into the world was the love of God for the world. Now by world, I think what is meant here is this. The world that is in rebellion to him. The world that oftentimes does not even believe he exists. A world that despises his laws, and constantly seeks to put their focus on themselves instead of their creator. That's the world that God loved. And that's the world that is loved by the triune God. So the eternal covenant of redemption is the love of God put into motion. In love, the Father sent his Son into the world so that sinners from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation would believe in Jesus Christ and not perish in their sins. In John 6, 37 to 40, Jesus says this. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus speaks of a people given to him by the Father in eternity. It's amazing the depth of theology Jesus would go to just in talking to people. Just regular people, fishermen, Farmers, this stuff is deep, and that's what he told them. But he speaks of a people given to him by the Father in eternity, and because of God's saving grace, they will come to Christ for salvation. Jesus Christ was appointed to provide the redemption that they would need, and that's exactly what he did when he came to earth, was provide for their redemption. Jesus further says in those verses, he came to do the will of the Father. So the Son gladly submitted to the eternal decree of the Father. Once again, this is reference, I believe, to what we call the covenant of redemption. And Christ did his work so thoroughly that he would not lose any of those that were given to him in that covenant of redemption. He will see to it that each of them persevere in their faith and are raised up with him when he returns. In John 10, 36, it's interesting that Jesus refers to himself as the one who was sanctified by the Father. Now, when we think of sanctified, as far as we're concerned, we think about our need to put aside our sin and to uh, put on obedience to love and obedience to, uh, to our Lord. Of course, Jesus had no sin. His his obedience was perfect, but still the word set apart is applied here. Jesus speaks of himself as being sanctified by the Father. So we take that literally. Jesus was set apart by the Father for a particular task, and he was sent into the world to accomplish that sacred purpose. And then he was, and that's what he did. He was, it was decreed that he, would, that he would do this. He was sent into the world to accomplish it. He was sanctified. He was set apart for this role of providing salvation for sinful people. In John 11:42, 42, Jesus speaks of a prayer that he, uh, he prayed just before he raised Lazarus from the dead. And he says to the Father out loud in this prayer, the reason he prayed the way he did is so that those who were listening to him would believe that he was sent by the Father. When was he sent? In eternity past. And he wanted them to know that, to hear that. One of my favorite passages in this regard is John 10, 27 to 30. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus refers to those who were given to him by the Father as his sheep. And he affirms that he will give his sheep eternal life, and that no one is strong enough to wrestle them out of his hands. And his confidence in making that promise is that he and the Father are one. Jesus Christ is fully God, and he participates in the eternal counsel as the supreme God, equal to the Father in power and glory. So Jesus Christ affirmed multiple times that he was sent by the Father to save a people given to him before the foundation of the world. Next, Jesus Christ affirmed that he functioned as the Father's prophet and that he spoke the words the Father gave him. John began his gospel by identifying Jesus as the eternal word, We have seen that the Father sent him into the world to save the people that God gave him in the eternal covenant. But we also see through the Gospel of John that the truth that Jesus spoke while he was in the world was also given to him beforehand by the Father. The truth that he spoke was given to him. And John 7, 16, Jesus says, My teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. And John 8, 26 to 28 He says, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. And they did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And then John 12, 48 to 50. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. So Jesus gives them more insight into what it means for him to be God the word. It was the father who sent him and gave him the words he would speak. It's the father who ordained the words of the son. So the son is God's word. His words are the word of God. So Jesus, therefore, is the prophet of God. His work of giving his life as the sacrifice for sinners speaks to the fact that he's the great priest of God. Here, the fact that he speaks the words that the Father ordained for him to speak makes it clear he's the ultimate prophet as well. Every word, every teaching, every testimony, every rebuke that Jesus gave was foreordained in the eternal covenant with the Father. Next, we see that Jesus affirmed what he Jesus reaffirmed regarding the role of the Holy Spirit in his covenant of redemption. So point D is this. Jesus Christ affirmed the promise of God to send the Spirit to apply redemption to his people. As we mentioned earlier, we don't see much in the way of direct reference in the, Holy, uh, in the Old Testament to the role of the Holy Spirit in the eternal covenant of redemption, but Jesus says a number of things that make it clear that the salvation of those that the Father gave to the Son in eternity would never have happened apart from from the work of the Holy Spirit. John 14, 16 to 17, Jesus says this, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. So Jesus tells the disciples, you're going to have need of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will be there in answer to Jesus' prayers. The coming of the Spirit is a gift. It's a gift that no believer can live without. The Father sent the Spirit because it had been decided in eternity that that is what would be done. This isn't an idea that just popped into Jesus' head. Hey, it might be good. idea. Maybe the Spirit could help you when I leave. This was an eternal plan. So this is Jesus praying for exactly what had been decreed in eternity past. The Holy Spirit is the comforter of all believers. He's the one that is there to give help in every way possible. Now, the first thing that the Holy Spirit must do to bring needed help to those who belong to the Father that have been given to the Son is to apply that redemption to their lives. That has to happen. Every one of us need to see our sin for what it really is. We need to see that we deserve eternal judgment. We need to see that Jesus Christ is the only one who will save us. Well, that's exactly what the Spirit does. John 16, 7 through 11, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin, and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they don't believe in me and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. So the, the Spirit's job is to expose the inexcusable guilt that we all have. We're all sinners and it's just kind of amazing when you think about it, the mental gymnastics we can do to kind of blame somebody else for what we've done. Um, we're good at that. It's somebody else's fault. If they hadn't said this or done this or acting this way, then I wouldn't be the way I am. That's not true. Yes, people have sinned against us, and you've sinned against other people, and so have I. But what's worst of all is that we've all sinned against our God. That's where the ultimate issue is, and it's the Holy Spirit's job to convince us of that and to point it out to us very specifically and personally. Because if we don't do that, we don't see a need to be saved. We think we're pretty good. So the Spirit convicts us concerning sin. He convicts us because we're unwilling to commit ourselves to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And it's the Spirit that, again, that makes that direct application of the salvation Jesus Christ earned to those who will believe. I mean, and this glorious ministry of the Spirit was determined in the eternal counsels the triune God. That's part of the love of God for the world. That's His grace in action. So the Spirit graciously and decisively applies the salvation of God to our lives. Then Jesus points out another glorious thing that the Spirit was tasked with in eternity. Jesus affirmed that the Spirit would inspire the Apostles to declare the truth He heard from the Father and the Son. This is a huge part of the work of the Holy Spirit that was decreed in eternity. John sixteen thirteen to 15, Jesus says, When he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So when the spirit comes in fullness, he says he does not speak of himself. Instead, he speaks what he hears. He speaks what it was agreed that he would speak. Jesus is making this declaration to the disciples, those who would become the apostles. And this is a promise that the spirit would guide them into all the truth. The spirit would remind them of the words of Jesus Christ. The spirit would give them clarity On what Jesus meant by what he said. The Spirit would enable them to write these words down, to communicate them clearly. So, the Holy Spirit really here is the living breath of the Father and the Son. It's by the Spirit that we have the written Word of God. I mean, just what a gift. I mean, the Scriptures are just indispensable to the work of God in this world, the Scriptures are indispensable to the work of the church which, as you remember, the church is the pillar and support of the truth. We need the scriptures. So the Spirit declared these words in history to the apostles because it was resolved in eternity that that this would be done. Now, there's one more thing I want to call your attention to from the words of Jesus about what had been ordained in the eternal councils of the triune God, and that's this. Jesus Christ affirmed, that the Father had given him the authority, the authority to judge all men at his second coming. This is John 5, 22-29. Jesus says, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into death, into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself, and he gave him authority To execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So, one of the big things that's focused on here is the last day, and it talks about the Father raising his people from the dead on the last day the day of Christ's return this will be the final day this will be the final judgment and jesus says the father has given him the authority as the exalted mediator to execute that judgment now inherent in the fact that jesus christ has been giving this given this exalted authority is the fact that after his resurrection after his ascension he was raised to the right hand of the Father. Now, this is not emphasized as much by John. Although we do see in John, John uh, Jesus telling Mary, when she realized he was resurrected, he says, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. I mean, there's more to come, in other words. When Peter preached at the day of Pentecost, he spoke not only about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but also of his exaltation. He quoted a verse that we mentioned earlier as an example of the divine dialogue that took place within the Godhead before the foundation of the world. He quotes from Psalm 110. Here's what Peter says in Acts 2, 32 to 36. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise Of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended to heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. So Jesus is the reigning, conquering king just like it was decreed in eternity past, would take place. And we are in the days of the rule of Christ. And in these days, he says, the enemies of the Lord are being convicted by the spirit of their sin, being brought to Christ as their Lord and Savior, and thereby becoming his willing servants. And it's when our Savior and Lord has fully built his church that he will return in glory. All these things have taken place and all these things will take place because it was decreed by the triune God in the covenant of redemption. Everything that we celebrate at Christmas goes back to this work, this eternal gracious work of our gracious God. But we want to thank you for things that are in some ways very clear and in some ways just make perfect sense to us when we think about who God is, but also things that are very challenging, very challenging to get our minds around, to understand the significance of what it means when it says God so loved the world that he gave. How long that love has been going on for people like us who don't deserve to be loved at all. And all that was a part of that love being expressed as the sun comes into the world to accomplish salvation for those who don't deserve it, but who desperately need it. All that was decreed as far as the work of the Spirit in our lives, and Lord, we thank you so much as we think in our own lives, those of us who are Christians, about the work you've done in us to cause us to understand our sin, to cause us to understand and to believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Thank you so much for that work. Again, even that that's so personal to us, Is part of this eternal decree of of our God. That's just amazing to think about. Thank you for the privilege of being your people. Help us to grow in our understanding and our reverence for you as our Lord and Savior. If you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, then a prayer like this will be a way to start. Lord, I thank you that the Spirit has shown me that I'm sinful. I need help, and Lord, I realize that Jesus Christ is the one who came to save, and I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. I commit my life to him as the Lord of my life, and I want to live in that relationship with you for the rest of my days. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment to Christ, you can make a note on your tear-off. Those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is in the name of Christ. that we.